Our study this evening begins in chapter 2, and verse 1 through 5, and there's an outline of what we'll be looking at. Uh, we're getting a picture of the local body at Corinth, the church, and the fact that uh, Paul makes it clear that it's not resting on man's wisdom. Now, how does God's wisdom come? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by how? Hearing. By hearing. And hearing what? What Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Cambridge have to say about life, about marriage, about the home, about uh, abortion, about the government. No, that's man's wisdom. And uh, so there's a distinction very clearly between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. Man, God's wisdom comes from the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And what are we charged to preach? The faith which was once and for all delivered unto the saints. Jude 3. There's only one chapter there, so it's just verse 3. <laughs> uh... Let's start by, now we dealt with a little of this last, last week, if I remember right, but let's start by reading chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, because that's going to be primarily our study this evening, in the time that's allotted us. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I came... Uh, not with excellency of speech or of wisdom when I have declared unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but rather in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. To this intent that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Almighty God. Well, <clears throat> so we want to discuss that a little bit. Uh, but before we do, let's back up and look at the text and see what he said very simply. He says, I made a choice before I came there to Corinth on what I would proclaim and how I would demonstrate it and why. And so we have Paul's presentation of how what and the why in those five verses <clears throat> that's the three choices that Paul made before on his way to uh, uh, when he wrote the letter to Corinth when he came to him uh, he said uh, verse 1 and 2 what I would proclaim We'll look at that a little bit. And verse 3 and 4, how I would demonstrate it. 
And verse 5 is the why. Uh, what reason would I do that? Uh, so he, he gives the proclamation, verse 1 and 2, demonstration, verse 3 and 4, and the purpose, verse 5. And so the how, verse 1 and 2, the what, verse uh, 3 and 4, and the why, verse 5. Now that outline will help you greatly in your study. <laughs> it just merely breaks down the method uh, uh, as it speaks of Paul's approach to Corinth, to the body of Christ at Corinth. <laughs> now how did he proclaim the gospel of Christ? Uh, that's how he starts out in this proclamation. Uh, how didn't he proclaim? How did he proclaim and what did he proclaim? Well, how didn't he proclaim? Well, he didn't proclaim the message with the eloquence or superior wisdom. Uh, the, word of, the words of eloquence uh, that he mentions there literally means rare quality. Uh, the reason words are eloquent is because they have rare quality. Sir Winston Churchill, for example, and I'm sure you, most of you don't even know who Sir Winston Churchill is. Uh, and Kirk, not Kirk Douglas, but Douglas MacArthur, the general, World War II. They were some of the finest orators that were ever known. They used words eloquent words, words of man's wisdom. Our world has been changed by single speeches. If Churchill had made that speech where he said, we'll fight on the beach, we'll fight them in the sea, we'll fight them in the city, and we will never surrender. And if the British Empire lasts for a thousand years and a thousand upon thousands, let it be said that this was their finest hour. Now that's sewing words together that are eloquent. But we don't preach the truth of God's word with eloquence. That's what Paul's message is. I didn't come to you with all of this. He could have because he's a highly educated man. But remember Philippians, uh, uh, what was it, 2 verse 8? No, 3 verse 8, Philippians 3 verse 8. Paul said that when he came to Christ, he counted everything in his life, his, his education, his pedigree, as dumb, calmer for the, for the knowledge of, of Christ Jesus. And so he's preaching the, the faith that comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He's not interested in trying to impress somebody with the eloquence of words. <clears throat> uh, now, in regard to Mr. Churchill and MacArthur that worked hand-in-hand in, hand in World War II and made those brilliant statements, uh, 
Britain withstood in the battle, and they with uh, they withstood because of those words. Those words forged those people into an instrument that worked together in winning the war because of their eloquence. Uh, so don't believe that eloquence doesn't have power. It does. But not the power that God wants presented. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, when I came to you, I didn't come with the eloquence of men and the wisdom of man's words. I came to you with the revelation of God, the mind of God, because when he gets over in this chapter, he's going to talk about how that God has revealed himself and revealed his mind, and we can know the mind of God as far as God wanted to reveal it to us. <clears throat> but Churchill died rejected by all his people in spite of all that eloquence. And MacArthur died a very lonely man in spite of all his eloquence. So what does eloquence get you? Rejection by your people and loneliness. It doesn't have the power of the gospel. The gospel will build men that will forge on in their lives faithful to the Lord. And so we preach God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. I think you're beginning to see the picture. I hope you're seeing the picture. So Paul said, I didn't come with rare quality of words. Now, he could have, but he didn't. He learned them because uh, uh, you don't go through the school of Tarsus without learning eloquence. Uh, but don't ever depend on it. It's a broken reed. In other words, it's a bruised reed that will break if you lean on it. And he said, I didn't come to you with that, or superior wisdom. Superior wisdom is wisdom that counts itself uh, superior. You ever run into somebody that thought themselves to be superior and they tried to speak superior wisdom? Any time that you count yourself superior, what are you using? Superior wisdom. And so he said, number one, I didn't try to get you with a bunch of fancy sounding words. He got right to the truth, didn't he? He said, I came to you knowing nothing save what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where the power is at is in the crucifixion. In the love that was demonstrated there. And the power because He was the Son of God, the Creator of the universe that submitted Himself to become a Son for the redemption of mankind. That is where the power lays. Now, Sir Winston Churchill and his fancy words and MacArthur, their superior fancy words of men, yeah, they had an impact on the world, but it waned away after World War II. They died very lonely and rejected by their own people. But the cross is not of that nature. The cross isn't a past history thing, it's a present it's a present thing. It's alive. All right, so number one, 
Paul says, I didn't try to get you with a bunch of fancy sounding words. And secondly, number two, I didn't use a bunch of man's tricks on you. I didn't use a bunch of man's wise ways of manipulation. Now, I've been around a few years. Uh, I have witnessed this art of manipulation, manipulating people. The business world is alive with it. And they form their words, and you see it on television, very articulately, uh, according to man's wisdom, to uh, manipulate you and bring you into compliance to whatever they're selling. So he said, I didn't manipulate you either in the way I said it or what I said. I did not manipulate you. And of course, nobody likes to be manipulated. Excuse me a minute, I'm losing my voice here. <clears throat> when I flew off that motorcycle, I hit the bank with my head and it put a, a, a crook in my throat. And when I swallow something, it goes over a hump and then goes down. <laughs> I think that's what's the matter with my speech. <laughs> But Terry supplies me with this stuff. He'll get us through, I think. All right. Now, the positive reason in the way that Paul did it. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you save a weak Savior. Because that's how the world looked at, looks at him. He says, Jesus and him crucified, in other words. That's what your text says. Uh, that's perfect tense in the Greek language uh, that it was originally written in and is extremely important to know. He's not saying I have determined to know nothing among you uh, than a fact in history called Calvary. He's not talking about something that's past tense. He's talking about something that's very present alive with its power to save. That's the way that I've read it in days past. I've determined <coughs> know nothing among you but a time, space, and event on a hill called Calvary. <coughs> now he had a time, space, and a spin on a hill, but he used the error tense if he was looking there. He's looking at the present and still standing Savior. And that's important. The present still standing Savior. Uh, the result is what he's looking at. Perfect tense. The action is completed, but it's got a continuing result. And the emphasis is on the continuing result, not on the past action. So Paul's not preaching a dead Savior. He's preaching one that died, but is alive, and in the present tense. Uh, it's an action that's completed, having a continual state of being. And so when Jesus died at Calvary, it was an action that was completed by the will and design of God. 
but it has a continuing state of being. All right. But the emphasis is on the continual state of being. So what he's saying is, I'm preaching Jesus and the result of his death. I'm preaching Jesus killed and the result of his dying. That's what he's saying. The cross still stands is what Paul is saying. Its power is still there because it's in the perfect tense. It's a thing that happened one time, but its influence, its results is still here. Uh, now some text say, uh, says uh, Jesus and him crucified. And if you read it that way, that's all right because we're living beneath the cross. Now if our sermons uh, don't convey that, then we've made a different choice than Paul made. We've uh, probably made the choice of wisdom rather than the choice of foolishness. Because you remember in the first chapter what Paul said about the preaching of the cross. It's foolishness to the world. And that's why we've got to get off on a lot of eloquence, a lot of wisdom, and back it up with a lot of evidence and all that stuff, and put a lot of human power in it, and yell in the right places. Uh, you know, you have written on your outline, yell here. That's a manipulation that men have from the pulpit a lot of times in speaking. We're not into manipulation. We're into preaching Christ and Him crucified. And uh, so, uh, so you'll have, if you're following human wisdom, you have on your outline that you yell at a certain place in your message and have a lot of tear-jerking illustrations. And the people walk away fed on nothing but cotton candy. Had no value in it. And that's what Paul's saying. I didn't come to you with cotton candy. I came knowing nothing save Jesus Christ and crucified. There is where the power's at. And that's what people need to know and that's when they'll listen to you. And that's when it'll have effect on their lives till the day they die. So, uh, cotton candy it tastes good, but it's it's only sugar, and sugar ought to have a skull and crossbones on it, I think. And so you've actually harmed the body of Christ when you preach like that with man's wisdom, <coughs> with all that stupid human stuff. Every uh, sermon I preach needs to have the cross lifted up in it. <coughs> Not as a fact of history, but as a current event. The cross of Christ ought to be on the evening news because it's a current event. Now, you'll not hear it on the evening news, but it ought to be there every day because it's a current event. It still has its power. <coughs> That's what this text is saying here. If you look at it and study it a little bit, and if you don't believe that, you preach and teach differently. Now, in what manner did uh, he do that? Paul, 
In what way did he demonstrate the cross? By his weakness and the, and the Spirit's power. Now we studied last week, uh, Paul saying that he came uh, there in weakness and fear. And we turned over to Acts, the 18th chapter, I believe it was. And we saw Paul in the historical document as it states that he went into Corinth and there he faced a lot of dangers with them people. And it was so bad that God came to Paul and told him, don't, don't, fear, don't fear these men because I have much people here and I'll protect you. And so he came there with fear and trembling. Uh, but he, uh, he also came by his weakness and, and the Spirit's power and the power of the Spirit's in the message. It's not some hoodoo thing out here. It's in the message. The Spirit can cause a man, uh, based upon its evidence and its belief, it's a, de it's a declaration of Christ, it can cause a man to give up his life for a cause called Christ and his cross. And after all, that's what you got to do if you're going to become a Christian. Like Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So he demonstrated his preaching by his weakness and by the Spirit's power. He said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And perhaps Paul was already affected with whatever he was affected with when he wrote the book of Galatians because it, uh, it, it appears uh, he wrote the book of Galatians uh, before he went. Uh, uh, that was his first epistle. And he already had this, this thing, whatever it was. And when it came upon him, it made him detestable looking. It was something that uh, when you looked at, it, uh, looked at it, your flesh crawled and your stomach turned inside out. I don't know what it was, it doesn't matter. It's thought to be leprosy or Parkinson's disease. But whatever it was, when it came on Paul, he was detestable to look at. And Paul chose this man to go to the Gentiles. And Paul knew, uh, and God, did I say Paul? God chose Paul to go to the Gentiles. And evidently, he wasn't able to speak very forcefully when it came on him because criticism in 2 Corinthians about him was that his letters are real strong, but he, his speech is contemptible and his bodily presence is weak. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. And so evidently, when all this came upon Paul, all his natural ability was gone. God don't want your natural ability in the pulpit. He never asked for your stiff-necked, uh, highly education in the pulpit. God rejoiced in the fact of Paul's malady because Paul was a broken man. He wasn't the man that he used to be. He prayed three times 
for this to be removed. And God said, no, 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 no. I know what you got, Paul, and I know why I chose you to go to the Gentile world. As he made his missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor, but God also knew that he had to be a broken man. And before a man can become uh, a preacher of the Lord, he's got to become a broken man. He can't be that arrogant, proud, uh, uh, nose-in-the-air type preacher. It won't work. It won't work. And so Paul said, I just come to you in simplicity. Weakness and fear like any man. Uh, of the powers that surround the body of Christ in Corinth. So, uh, I heard of a very successful preacher who worked in Portugal. He was a missionary who had Parkinson's disease. Now I'm going to show you a broken man that had a lot of a lot of influence among people in preaching the truth. Uh, it caused his speech to be sporadic and halted, and his body is uncontrollable. That's the nature of this disease. I heard when he first got there in Portugal, he rented a room, he went down to eat the first day, and there was nobody to feed him, so he got a bowl of oatmeal. And the first bite went on his coat, the second on the wall. And then they fed him then on. Then he wheeled to the street corner and he waited long enough for someone who loved him enough to wheel him across the street. They wheeled him out in the park where he handed out tracts all day long. Tracts, uh, little pamphlets speaking about different subjects of the Lord. I don't know how many he baptized. Uh, it was a bunch, including uh, the woman that he married, that married him. I can see the benefits of being a muscular dystrophy case, can't you? A broken man. Broken not only in body, but in spirit. I imagine his muscular dystrophy got a lot of attention, don't you? And gave him access to preach. And people no doubt wondered, what, what is it with this guy? And they could see very clearly it had nothing to do with health and welfare of men as men count things, but the wisdom, the power of God through the Word. And so he was totally dependent on God and others for his success. And that's why he had success. He was totally dependent. And until the man of God become, recognizes that and becomes totally dependent on God, he ain't worth spit. He's preaching popcorn. He's glorifying himself rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's already told us where our glorying is in chapter 1, didn't he? Our glorying's in Christ. And so we Americans and others somehow uh, have invented the ability to act cool. Uh, the 
remember Fonz, cool, man, cool. But I cannot be cool when I look at the cross of Christ. Cool isn't cool there. And so that nonsense has got to be stopped, dropped. You've got to become a broken man, and the cross is the only thing that will do it. All of a sudden, I must be broken. Isn't that the way Paul is saying here, in his case? He's saying, I must be broken. Uh, I think Paul was so hard to break that the Lord broke him physically. And it was probably the greatest benefit that came to Paul to be broken physically with whatever malady he had that was awesome. Uh, remember Paul prayed three times that he might be uh, relieved of it. And God said, why are you fighting my grace? Because muscular dystrophy or whatever uh, uh, body ailments is God's grace if he allows it. He has a purpose in it. He didn't say, I will give you grace sufficient to handle your problem. He said, your problem <coughs> is my grace. He said, my gift is sufficient. My gift of your uh, unhealthiness is sufficient for you. Why are you wanting to fight my grace? Uh, are you thinking I don't know what I'm doing? This is God talking to Paul. You know, we're, we're imagining this uh, is why God didn't answer Paul's prayer. He prayed three times and be removed. Paul thought he could do a better job of preaching if this thing was removed, whatever it was. And God come to him after three times, Paul praying. And he said, Paul, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient. And God's grace is sufficient for you, for all of us. God's grace is sufficient, regardless of what state we find ourselves in. Um, and so God, more or less, was uh, letting him know that are you think you think you could do a better uh, job than I'm doing? I know that I'm preaching, but it needs to be done here. It's the nature of the beast. That's, we get into Bible studies, and sometimes we get off preaching, but that's, that's necessary. But it's absolutely what Paul is saying. He's saying, I will demonstrate the gospel's power by my weakness. That's what he said. I came to you uh, in fear and trembling and in weakness. And when things happen, uh, that will prove the Spirit's power. Did you know that man, uh, that man can do if he gets his mind to do it and unites with others to do it? Anything he wants to do, and even God can't stop him. Isn't that what Genesis 11 says? These guys are together. And they're building a tower to heaven in Genesis 11. They got one mind, the text says, to do it, and they will do it. And uh, they'll do it, so God says, let us go down, down there and do something about it. 
And so God went down and confused their tongues uh, or they would have got, uh, got done uh, what they intended to without God's help. And that's tower building. Men do tower building. And they can build them. But God is the one who steps in like He did with Paul. And God uh, allowed this uh, buffeting of Satan of this malady he had. God allowed it. Same as he went down and he changed the direction of all them people with one mind to build that temple or that tower. So we can do great things in local churches without God's help and straight to hell. I've watched the church of our Lord do great things that was worthless. Bible classes for little children. That's a responsibility God gave you as mom and dad. Didn't give it to some class. Didn't give it to some stranger. Didn't give it to some pervert. And there are perverts that slip into the church to take advantage of, uh, to use a biblical term, silly women. (laughs) I'm not calling anybody silly. I don't want anybody to get offended over that, but that's a biblical description of women being led off by these kind of fools. And so we can do great things. We need to recognize that in the local churches without God's help and go straight to hell doing it. I've been in too many congregations in my life and seen that they had nothing but popcorn. Oh, they could jump up and down and they could get wild about a program and a plan that they got. And they could go through paperwork and they could hire secretaries they set up offices in the church building. Uh, oh, we're on the way to winning Christ, winning souls. And all they were doing was playing great games. Never went anywhere. They didn't preach the wisdom of God. They was too much wound up in the expertise and the salesmanship of men. Don't ever get there. Recognize the simplicity of the gospel and preach only the gospel and recognize where the responsibility is like raising children. God didn't set up classes. He set up just the opposite. He set up a system where he declared very clearly that his word would dispel upon the congregation that gathers the strangers, the people, the children, the women, and everybody together. And they all learn together. That way there's no mistake. You send your kid to a Bible class, you don't know that teacher. You don't know what they're teaching. You just assume, well, they're a member of the church, they've got to be teaching what's correct. No. They might have been a Baptist for 99 years and just was baptized the other day, and the elders said, we need teachers in the class. Anybody want to volunteer? Yes, me, 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 me. Why? Because they want to do something for the Lord. But are they prepared to do it? No. They need to be in the class being taught the Word of God along with the children that was going to be in their class. And mom and dad can sit there and they can judge what's being taught. And they can correct what maybe the teacher says wrong because they're there to witness and hear it. 
All right, so we need to acknowledge that we can do great things in local churches without God's help and go straight to hell. Don't pass go, don't collect $200 as it were. The church will be in deep trouble with that kind of a mindset, and I've seen it too many times. They're never going anywhere. They're just friendly people. They're just people that have dinners and parties. and They go to Camp Cucamonga up in the woods and spend a week with the droolers and the scooters and the teenagers and the marriage and the unmarried and the aged and the, you know, just on and on with their nonsense. They think they're building Christianity. They're on the way to hell with a bunch of nonsense, eating popcorn. Popcorn won't fit. You got it, it. It's not sufficient. <laughs> Try it sometime. Just spend a week eating popcorn. Or you can become a broken vessel like Paul that we've been discussing here. And therefore, a recipient of the Spirit's power. Because people that don't know is going to look at you like they did the paraplegic. And they're going to say, what drives that individual? What makes him make himself a spectacle? Because that's what he is. He's trying to eat oatmeal, and his first spoonful went on his coat, second spoon went on the wall, and finally somebody with a little compassion got up and helped feed him. He was a broken man that knew how embarrassing it was, but he set all that aside for the cross of Christ. And his message was simple, as Paul declares here. So, Everybody will know then that the church stands on the power of God and not on the wisdom of man. And that's the idea. And that's where uh, 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 I'm headed, Paul says. Uh, and I agree with him. Uh, I'm sure you do too. Verse 5 needs to be related to education. So many choices the world makes, we make the same way the world does. What's beneficial? Let me climb the ladder. That's what's beneficial today. That's what education teaches your children. Oh, get in there and climb the ladder. Step on anybody you have to on your way to the top. You know what it's about? It isn't about sacrifice. It, they've even dropped and they will not allow the teaching of love your neighbors yourself. They won't allow do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. And all that's involved in what we're talking about here. Uh, education says, let, uh, climb the ladder. Make enough money now, uh, uh, but I can move out of this place to another place. And I find out when I move over there that I've lost all of my contacts for the gospel because you put your emphasis in the wrong place. So all I'm saying is that there's implications in verse 5 here in our text that we're studying that they really need to consider. And you need to consider that it affects all areas of life. 
one another relationships in the church ought to be decided on what God's power declares and not what man's wisdom declares. What's God's wisdom? I love that fellow that's got all kinds of problems and don't like me. He cannot like me and I, I can understand why. But I don't hate him just because he hates me. I love him. I, may, I mentioned Sunday, I used myself as an illustration uh, that my attitude ought to be that I, I have no enemies. No man is my enemy. He may hate my guts, but I don't hate him. And if I have an opportunity, I preach to uh, the worst of them, any of them, because I see the love of the cross. You see, it all, it all stems from the cross. <laughs> all right, so uh, so the church ought to decide on what God's power declares and not on what man's wisdom declares. Because man's wisdom again is reach for the top. Climb the ladder of success. Step on whoever you have to that's in your way. But you're on the way to making money, making a career uh, for your own glory, and boy, aren't you great. What happens in marriage with that kind of a teaching? It comes out of education. Do you know that we never had a higher uh, rate of divorce? Somebody told me the, the statistics on that. What was it, 78% of marriages turn into divorces? You drive through these new homes that they're building around here. And there you can see a young couple just got married. And they've signed papers putting themselves in, in debt for uh, half a million dollars for one of them houses. And they moved in with a big smile. And that smile is erased very quickly because they find out that they got a house that is requiring too much of them. And there's disagreement with them over the house, and over the children, and over everything. They're disgruntled, and it isn't long until they're in the divorce court at one another's throat. That's the wisdom of man. But uh, so spiritual relationship cannot be built outside the body body of Christ. Uh, do we build relationships outside the body? Of course we do. But the spiritual eternal relationships must be built within the body. That has to do with uh, having no fellowship with the evil works of darkness and those that practice it. Relationships. I rode motorcycle for years with an old boy that I finally had to give up on. He was polite to me because I was religious and he didn't have an ounce of religion, didn't believe in it, didn't didn't want to hear it or nothing. And of course we rode together. But it was a strange relationship. And 
I found out real quick that relationship couldn't coexist because his places he wanted to go was not my places. And uh, actually he catered to me because I told him the first time we rode off heading across three or four states, I told him, I said, you need to know this. When Sunday comes, I'm going to worship my Lord somewhere. Uh, and he was the one who, he got on the computer and found where the churches was, where we was going to spend the night, each night on that trip. And he had the phone numbers and everything. <laughs> it was kind of humorous. But there was a relationship, but it wasn't like the relationship, the bonding that takes place amongst those in the body. Uh, and sometimes our relation, our relationships in the world means more to us than it does in the body. And we make friends quickly in the world because we're too much like the world. But we are kind of bitter against one another in the body to cherish. We're just the opposite of what we should be. All right. Uh, so that uh, the church, the body, must be the most important. The people like us that are uh, bowing beneath God's power are the people we need to establish the closest relationships with. Because we're soldiers in armament, fighting a battle, a common foe. Ephesians 6, 10-18. But the thing that it says to me here in the text, most of all, is that all plans and all work must be based on faith. We don't go out here and use human wisdom to plan on how the church is going to be successful. We don't use human wisdom to build the Lord's church. We use faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So all work must be based on faith. All of my plans and all of my endeavors uh, must be based on faith because otherwise it's based on my wisdom and not on God's power. Now, took a brief look at the first five verses. I think we did. I hope we did. Now, chapter 2, verse 6, as you see on the outline here, right here. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, and going all the way through chapter 3, Paul presents the local body confronted with the mind of God. Now we live in the world of man and so we have the mind of man and it conflicts with the mind of God. <coughs> but God has revealed Himself so that you and I can know all that He wants us to know. He didn't leave us ill-equipped. After all, He made He built this universe. Does it look like it's ill-equipped? It looked like he made any mistakes. <laughs> That's why we call it a cosmos and not a chaos. Because <laughs> everything 
in nature. Everything about life works together for life's common good. The planets, they work for man's good. And the planets also work for God as it declares in Psalms 19, verse 1 through 6. The fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. And their sermon is preached to all the inhabitants of the earth. And regardless of their language, it's understood that sermon is preached in the caucus or in the uh, in the cosmos. And that sermon is mentioned in Romans 1, verse 20. Paul said, For the visible things of God from the creation of the world, ever since the world began 6,000 years ago, it has preached this same sermon day and night. And so he says the invisible things about God, things you can't see, are clearly seen. Now that sounds like a contradiction. But then he's going to tell you how they're saw, not with these eyes. They're invisible to them. The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made specifically his divine power and Godhead and the way that verse ends is scary it says so that man is without excuse there'll never be nobody that'll stand before God and be so stupid as to say well, I didn't know there was a God because the universe declares it it cries out for an intelligent designer and a powerful designer that created it and the unison amongst it the union in it we're not studying uh, uh, evidences but let me just mention one it doesn't strike you strange that uh, evolution talks about all species of life see that they need different things and so they evolve four legs or two legs and all of these things look at the commonality amongst all of them they got a digestive system they got a blood system they got an exhaust system if you understand what I'm I ain't going to use no other words at it. I've been reprimanded too much over here in the pulpit I'm trying to be a nice guy but look at the whether it's a crocodile or a fish or a human, or a, a, an elephant, or a horse, or what it is, there is a commonality. Doesn't that tell you there was one designer? Doesn't that speak of one mastermind that designed everything? He made everything, not only in unison, but after a pattern. And so no wonder Romans 1.20 says, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, specifically his divine power and godhood to the intent that man is without, absolutely without excuse. There's other things that may leave man without excuse, and Paul mentioned it to the Athenian philosophers on Axe Hill, on Mars Hill, in Acts the 17th chapter. Paul 
noticed that they had all of these statues to different gods. That was the nature of the Greek people. It still is. Uh, the Greek gods, you know, Zeus and I can't think of some of those others. They had many gods. Anybody remember? Zeus and Thor and uh, Superman and Superman <laughs> and Batman. Well, anyway, <laughs> they, they had all these gods. Yeah. Now, where was I going with that? They had all these different gods. Yeah, and so Paul, he saw that they had an inscription there on one uh, monument to the unknown God. They was afraid they might offend one that they hadn't learned about yet. And so they had this monument to the unknown God. And Paul said, I see you're very religious, uh, very superstitious, but I've seen this statue out there. Let me tell you about this unknown God. And when he finished telling, talking about God, describing him, he got down to the last statement, verse 30 and 31. And here's where he nailed it down, where man is without excuse also. Uh, how's it start? 30. 30. It says in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. You're always reading out of some comment. Uh, has somebody got the King James? My mind's slipping me. I've quoted that a thousand times and I can't seem to get started. Oh. At one time, God winked at the ignorance of man. It doesn't mean winking like we do, you know, or some uh, boy playing around or whatever. Needs his butt whooped. Needs his bottom whooped. But it means that God didn't destroy humanity just because of it. At one time, God winked at the ignorance of man, but now, in view of the cross, He commands all men everywhere to repent. And here's why. Because He has appointed a day. So on God's calendar, there's a day appointed. In the which He'll judge this world in righteousness by that man that He ordained as His Son whom he's given assurance unto all men and that he raised him from the dead. Now Paul said about this God that he's given assurance to all men. I've worked with some ungodly rascals that wouldn't have anything to do with religion. But God has given them assurance. And the assurance is in the resurrection. Is there proof of the resurrection? Absolutely. Does anybody want to look at it? Well, the world don't. We, we we like to look at it, but they don't. But nevertheless, the proof is there. It stands in confrontation of man's disobedience and rebellion. And that's why the world at large is going to hell. God didn't want that. He said, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. And He would that all men should repent. But nevertheless, that's going to be the reality of it. But they will have no excuse, is the point. And so God has revealed Himself, and Paul's going to talk about that next week. <laughs> Our time's already up. He's going to talk about the confront, uh, 
did I spell that right? Confrontation with the mind of God. Man's faced with it. That's why he don't like to hear it. That's why he said, no, no word of God, no Bible in the school. Get it out of here. We don't want that. But we'll take everything else. We'll wonder about your sexuality, whether you're a he, she, or an it. Uh, we'll, we'll allow anything else but that. They don't like the mind of God. But God has confronted this world with the truth reality and it is sufficient we've already studied that it's sufficient for all of our needs it's not lacking anywhere that's not the nature of the creator is it when we look at this cosmos we see a very intelligent creator he made you and me don't don't you think he knows how to reason with us somebody says well the bible is so confusing no it's not confusing you're the one that's confused the Bible can clear it up if you study it. But nobody wants to study it. They just want to indict the Bible. That's confusing. I try to read it. Yeah. Alright, so next week we'll look at the local body confronted with the mind of God chapter 2 verse 6 through chapter 3 verse 4. And we're going to see what God planned from the very beginning before He ever made the world. And He'll tell us about it in one of the verses. I forget which one. But He'll tell us that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. He's talking about the church, the body, the local body, and the salvation that comes by way of a cross. Of course, by next week you will have studied that, so we won't even have to mention it. We'll just move on to the next subject in chapter 3, verse 4. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me. And today is...